Bibles this evening to Ephesians, and specifically tonight we're going to be taking a look at Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. I know it says in your folder um, 8 through 16, but I realized two things. First, that every commentator I was reading throughout the week uh, <laughs> divided it through 8 four through 14, and as I contemplated it, I, I realized, yes, there's a, there's a good deal of sense doing that, and also because I, I have overloaded you with some some long sermons, so I figured I would give you about 20 minutes respite. I'm just kidding, actually. It's never going to be 20 minutes, but <laughs> sorry. But a little bit of respite and not uh, go over such a long portion. And uh, with Calvin, I can see how the, uh, how the section 8 through 14 hangs together more uh, coherently. So before we turn to the word of the Lord, let us turn to God himself, who alone can help us to understand his word and to apply it to our hearts. And let us, uh, let us ask for his help. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, I know I can't divide your word aright. I can't hope to do so unless, O oh Lord, you grant me a measure of your spirit. I pray this evening that we would be awakened right, as one of the themes here and that you would fill us with that inner light, which is the overarching theme, the light that only your Holy Spirit can shed within, that we would be able to see our new nature, and because of our new nature, our new vocation, our new calling, that we would also be able to see what our duties are in this world. Lord, you have given us such blessings, Lord, that blessings that are not to be kept to ourselves, but shared with others. May we, O oh Lord, then hear and take these things and then give them to others, knowing that as we give them away, we are the ones who are being blessed with an opportunity to serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 8 through 14. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If I were to ask you, what is one of the first fears that children develop. It's almost a natural fear. It's the fear of the dark, isn't it? We seem to be imprinted from the word go with a fear of darkness and a desire for light. And one of the things that we train our children to do is to overcome that, to, uh, to be able to, to sleep in darkness and so on. But in one sense, it's right, isn't it, to be afraid of the dark? It is something natural. Within the scriptures, at least, darkness is always equated with evil. Darkness is a sign of ignorance. It is a sign of unbelief. It is a sign that the light of Christ has not yet entered in. And so, while obviously it would be crippling for us as adults to be afraid of the dark because we do go through periods of day and night, light and dark naturally, yet in a spiritual sense, it is a good thing for believers 
to still be afraid of the dark and not wish to dwell in it. That is something that Paul makes absolutely clear. This idea that we are children of light and not darkness is to be found throughout the scriptures. In 1 John 1, 3, uh, 5, uh, John, who is sometimes called the, uh, the apostle of love, but who is also, as you go through his books, the apostle of light, says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The mark of a child of the light is that they dwell in the light. They walk in the light. Their vocation, their calling, their actions, their deeds, their words, all of these are marked by light and not by darkness. We know that the word tells us that ultimately there will be a final separation between light and darkness. Darkness will disappear. It's not obviously a coincidence that the first thing that God, who John tells us is light and in whom there is no darkness at all, what was his first command spoken in the word of God? Let there be light. And that, of course, was before the light of the sun. Who was the light at that moment in time? God. God himself was the light. And we know that in hell, one of the things that has always struck me, there are certain things that I don't think our conceptions of hell, uh, especially the cartoonish ones that have prevailed, and, and note this, uh, one of the things that the devil always does is he tries to make uh, evil seem uh, silly because he wants us to, to say, well, you know, this is, this is of no moment. It's not important. We don't need to worry about evil. We don't need to worry about, for instance, the devil or hell. So the devil is pictured as this ridiculous form with the horns and a red suit and a pitchfork and a, a spiky tail and so on. And hell is pictured as a place which is full of fire where you can see perfectly. That is not how hell is pictured in the Bible. Hell is pictured as a place, yes, where there is fire, but a fire that does not illuminate a place that is marked by outer darkness, a darkness so thick that you are not able to see at all. In Matthew 25, 30, we read this in cast. This is Jesus talking about those goats who, although they were part of the visible church, were no part of his body and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The outer darkness, a place where there is torment, but still no light. Darkness, of course, again and again, is the place where those who are damned dwell. In Jude 1.6, uh, the brother of the Lord says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And he describes false prophets as raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Heaven, by contrast, brothers and sisters, is a place where there is no darkness at all ever, not even a shadow. There shall be no night there, we learn. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. This idea, the motif of light and darkness and the difference behind it, that evil is, is darkness, is something that is so ingrained even in our cultural heritage coming down from Christianity that you'll see it in places, if you look, that you don't even expect. So, for instance, in the beginning of Star Wars, the original Star Wars, the only really great Star... Well, Empire was great too, but, 
the, the, the first one, episode four, as it, was, as it was called, you begin with this clash, don't you, between two starships, one chasing the other, and then you notice that the interior of the, the starship that's being chased is all what? White. And the protagonist, the, the person who they are trying to spirit away, she too is dressed in white. And then you have this ominous, awful presence comes in and he comes in, the other ship is in darkness. It's red and, and dimly illuminated. Then he steps out and he is dressed entirely in black. You have been given there the signal that he, the person who has just entered in, and who was that, kids? Darth Vader. Uh, he walks in. He's dressed all in black. He's the bad guy. In westerns, they used to make it very simple so you could figure out who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. What did they do? White hat and black hat. <laughs> you always knew the difference there. And isn't it a sad thing that in modern films, we always try to make everything now gray, everything's nuanced. We can't even have heroes anymore. We have to have anti-heroes, you know. So the dragon is, is the good guy, and it gets ridiculous after a while. But we, all of this is to say... God has built us to understand that light is what we should be pursuing, not darkness. That darkness is a mark of evil. Darkness is a mark of ignorance. Darkness is where the sin dwells. Now, Paul has been talking to the Ephesians, and he's talking about a people who have been brought out of a very pagan culture, a people who were once dwelling in the darkness. And you'll notice that in Ephesians 5.8, he says, for you were once darkness. You, but note that. He says, you were once. There was a reason why I picked the call to worship today. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11. There, as Paul is addressing the Corinthians, the people who dwelt in an even more pagan city, he says, and such were some of you. Not, and such are some of you. Flitting back and forth between light and darkness as though you can dwell in both places equally. You were once in the darkness, Paul says to the Ephesians, but no longer. Now you are what? You are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of the light. Have no fellowship with sin. That was where you once lived. You once lived amongst the things of death. You were like, as I, I said earlier, you were like the Gadarene demoniacs dwelling amongst the tombs, dwelling in darkness, but, but no longer. So therefore, have no fellowship with sin, for your state as darkness is now in the past. The light has come upon you. The light is now within you. You are not merely enlightened, but you take that light that is given to you and you become like yourself, enlightening others, because you have been brought into union with the Lord who is light. And when darkness comes into the presence of light, what goes away? Darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome the light. The light always overcomes darkness. So as light stands for knowledge, you have been brought into a spiritual knowledge that you didn't have before. You have been, that's why when we talk about how people are inside once they've been regenerated, we say they've been illuminated. They've been filled with the light of the Lord. And this word that they've been given, that they now understand, one of the things that it should have brought to you as you became a Christian is happiness. 
okay? Because you have been brought into communion with God and therefore you have holiness and happiness. And no longer is it darkness and depression and ignorance and sin and misery and all of those things that used to be part of your life. You were once darkness. You were once polluted. You were once wretched. You were once children of the dark, but you're not any longer. You are children of the light. And therefore, you are in some senses like the moon. One of the, the most glorious things that you can see sometimes is when you've got, you know, the full moon, maybe a super moon. Those are really impressive, aren't they? And, and you've got that there, and it's almost like, you know, it's almost as close to day. It's so bright, the shining of the moon. And you can see to walk and so on. Well, the, the believer's supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be. The light isn't original to us, just as the light isn't original to the moon. Rather, the moon shines because the light of God shines upon it, and it illuminates the world. You children are supposed to be reflecting the light not of the S-U-N, but the light of the S-O-N. You're supposed to be bringing sunlight with you wherever you go. And he says, therefore, that your communion with God, and here I, I need to make a textual, I hate to, to move um, from uh, you know, an exhortational style to an expository style in the midst of a, of a sermon, but I do need to do that. In verse 9, uh, you'll note in the NKJV, it says, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness. This is one place where I'm going to have to disagree with the NKJV. It actually should read, if somebody here has an ESV, they will have already noticed that it says fruit of the light. The older texts actually do say that. It's hogar karpos, that is fruit, to photos, fruit of the light, not fruit of the pneumatos, which is fruit of the spirit. Um, the reason that this probably happened, that there was a change from fruit of the light, which makes sense, it, it's absolutely in keeping with everything that Paul is saying. The reason that there was a, probably a change to fruit of the spirit later on is a copyist assimilated Galatians 5.22, for the fruit of the spirit is, and so on. And he was either thinking that or he decided to, to make it uniform or it's simply, a, you know, after you've been reading scripture for, for so long and copying it, it's very easy to transpose one word for the other. But the word there is almost certainly fruit of the light. It makes much more sense. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, as the ESV puts it. These things that he lists, note this, the evils that he lists by, by uh, negation, okay? The things that he lists, good, right, true, so on, they're the opposites of the evils that he had just discussed before in chapter 4. These are the things that should mark you. Uh, you should be good as opposed to malicious. You should be righteous as opposed to, to, to covetous. And you should be opposed absolutely to lying. You should be truth tellers. These are the things that should mark you. There should be that savor of, of, of truth about you so that even when you are confessing, people know that you're telling the truth. They don't have to make you swear to something and so on because you are by nature a truth teller, whereas the people of darkness are by nature liars because they are descended from who? The father of lies, and they follow his instructions. In verse 10, he goes on to say that if that's our nature then our entire life, and this is a wonderful idea, will be spent finding out what is truth. It used to be uh, that in education, the point of a university 
was that we would seek after truth. Veritas used to be the, the, the great thing that we were all trying to come to. Harvard, that was part of their motto. So many universities in the United States, most of which were founded, of course, as theological seminaries, had veritas, truth in some sense, in their, in their motto. But we don't seek for truth any longer. We seek for, in fact, there is no truth. We've denied. We, we, you know, Pontius Pilate's horrific question to Christ after Christ, who is the truth, came before him and spoke of himself as the truth, definite article, what was Pontius Pilate's question? What is truth? Truth is something un unfindable. There's your truth, there's my truth. There's no such thing as truthy truth, though. There's no objective overlying truth or anything like that. But no, we are children of the one who is the truth, who is the life. And therefore, our lives must be still, even if the world casts it off and says, truth is impossible to find. There's only my subjective beliefs and so on, which can be founded on utter nonsense. But you, that's not you. You're supposed to be truth seekers in everything you do. So what do you do? As you go through life, you are seeking to find the truth. Finding out what is true is a process of finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. You take things, ideas, you take, uh, you take the things that come at you in the world, books, plans, political themes, so on, and you, you compare them to what the Lord has already said is acceptable and unacceptable, and thus you determine what's true and what's not true, and then you walk as children of the light, your conscience weighing these things to determine their truth content according to what God has already said. Because it is the Lord who is the ultimate standard of right and wrong, what he said. And so therefore, when we're trying to determine what is true, as children of the light, we compare it to that which the light giver has already told us. Now we notice here also that in verse 11, the next verse, he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. What's interesting there is, Paul doesn't say have no fellowship with the unfruitful fruits of darkness. Did you notice that? He contrasts the fruits of the light and the works of darkness. Uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown make this note. They say, sins are terminated in themselves and therefore are called works, not fruits. Their only fruit is that which is not in a, a true sense fruit, namely death. Plants cannot bear fruit in the absence of light. Sin is darkness and its parent is the prince of darkness. Graces, on the other hand, as flourishing in the light, are reproductive and abound in fruits, which as harmoniously combining in one whole are termed in the singular the fruit of the light. Brothers and, and sisters, what we see here is something that is profound. Note this. Darkness cannot produce life. It cannot produce truth. It cannot produce any good. Darkness produces evil. It produces sin. And the wages of sin is death. So the more darkness there is in the world, the more lack of truth there is, the more death there is, the more sin there is. And it doesn't produce anything good or productive in the light. But we are told here, and this is vitally important, that the children of light are fundamentally different from the children 
of darkness. We have a life in us and a light in us that they know nothing of. And we are told in verse 12, we are not to have any fellowship with them. We are to, or rather in verse 11, we are to expose them. We are to come into that place, shining the light of Christ wherever we are, and we reprove by doing so, by living our lives, that which is contrary to light. We don't have anything to do with darkness. We don't turn out the light within us and then run into the light. A darkness, rather. Sometimes I get confused with all the dark and light and light and dark and so on that, uh, that Paul is, is bringing out. But one of the things here that we need to remember, all of these works, they spring from darkness, and therefore they are they're shameful, they're abominable, they have the savor of death, they, they spring from an ignorance of God, a putting away uh, the things of God. Now, this is something that we need to remember, okay? We can't have moral neutrality. It's just impossible. There are only two phases when it comes to morals and ethics and, and truth and, and error, light and darkness. There's no middle ground. There's no vacuum. There's no absence. I've often said there's no, there's no ethical or moral Switzerland that lies in between, that's utterly neutral. Therefore, what happens in a society that drives out the light, and what is the light? The knowledge of God. The light is the knowledge of Christ. Once it drives that out, it takes his word and it says, Be gone! and throws it away. Inevitably, what you have then is increasing darkness. Darkness and ignorance. And where darkness and ignorance dwell, you inevitably have sin. And the less light there is, the more darkness there is. And the more sin there is, the greater the evil. Where there is less knowledge of God, there is inevitably more and more darkness, and more and more evil. If you wonder why the society is going in the direction it is, and why we are becoming outrageously nonsensical in our darkness and evil, it's because we've cast out the light. As there is less and less light, the evil, and it becomes more and more shameful, doesn't it? I don't even want to watch the news. I watch, you know, pictures of, I, and I, it's, it's shameful to even mention these things, of, of men cavorting in, in outfits dressed as, as women, counterfeit women. And, and, and this is a, I'm, I'm going to ruin my own theme here, but how is it that we look at, you know, the, the old, I hate to say this, the old black minstrel shows where there's this awful caricaturing, and we say, that's, that's wrong, that's evil, that's, that's blackface. And we look at an awful counterfeit caricature of a woman. It's this grotesque thing. And we don't say, that's evil, that's woman face. Why? Because we have cast out the light. And as we do that, what happens? We get more and more counterfeits coming in. Things that pretend they are good when in fact they are evil. That's all darkness can do. It can only produce a counterfeit good, but not a true good. It, it can only twist. It can't produce light. It can take that which is living and break it and twist it. It can never make it into something new because it can't create things. It is death and so on. So what is happening? As the darkness comes in, the light goes out. And we become a people who are capable of more and more evil because we are surrounded by darkness and sin.
And that should be a shame to us. Now, verse 13 says this, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. One of the reasons why Christianity is so hateful to the world, we talked about the fact, why is Christianity hated in two-thirds of the world's nations? Actually, it's hated in 100% in of the world's nations. It's just a, it's not actively persecuted in all of them. It's so hateful to the world because as light bringers, light bearers, those who are bonded and in union with the one who is light, when we come into a place, inevitably, we end up exposing the darkness and the works of darkness because we suddenly bring in life and life and true truth. What happens is, is like when you walk into, I, I used to live in um, an apartment in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, um, and this apartment dated back to the 1800s, and it had cockroaches, which I think also dated back to the 1800s as well. They were big enough that if you could have caught them, you could put a saddle on them or you know, use them to pull a cart. They were gigantic. And I would walk into, I would walk into the, and I hated this process. You would walk into the kitchen at night, and you would flip on the lights, and it was like the Cantown races, you know. They're all, you know. Then there'd be a big one like, what are you doing here? You know, um, <laughs> that, that was, you know, a cocky cockroach. But that's what happens when a Christian walks into the midst of darkness. R.C. Sproul used to tell a story about how, um, uh, and it was told to him by a caddy, a Christian caddy. Uh, he had once caddied a game. Uh, R.C. was a great, a great golf player. And uh, Billy, believe it or not, Billy Graham was also a golfer. And this caddy told him a story about once he had uh, caddied a, a uh, makeup foursome. They had a threesome, and they needed an additional player. And, uh, and a, um, an actor had come to the, the club. He was well-known. Uh, and they said, uh, you know, we can get you on the course immediately if you're willing to join a foursome. And he said, hey, okay, I'll do that. So he joins the foursome. And playing in the threesome that he'd suddenly joined was Billy Graham. And uh, so he got to the end of the, uh, of, of the 18th hole, and the, the caddy had noticed he was getting angrier and angrier as, as they went around uh, the course. And eventually he got to the end, and he threw down his golf club, and he was just fit to be tied. And, uh, you know, he got to the, back to the golf house, and he was talking, or what do they call it, the, the final place? The, the clubhouse, not the golf house. <laughs> the golf course and the clubhouse. <laughs> Makes no sense anyway. So he goes back to the, uh, the clubhouse. One of his friends meets him, and he, uh, he says, uh, you know, you look furious. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, you know, playing with you know, the self-righteous preacher guy, Billy Graham, and so on. And he said, well, what did he say that offended you so much? And he said, nothing, you know. It was just the, uh, it was just the fact of being with him the whole time was a reproach to his entire lifestyle. And it, it, what did it do? It played on his conscience, the contrast between a child who's living in light and somebody who's dwelling in darkness, somebody who's full of the things of life and goodness and somebody who makes evil that which they spend their entire time in. It makes them angry. It, it plays on their conscience. They, they hate it. John spoke of it in John 3.19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The devil hates the light, and those who are following him hate the light as well. But the light itself has a transformative power. Note this. It's very important. The light transforms the darkness. It drives it out. All of us. Note this. We can't, you know, when we talk about the children of the light and the, and the children of darkness, remember where we came from, all of us. What did he start out saying in verse 8? For you were once not light, you were once darkness, but now you are light. We were all once living in darkness. We were once all children of darkness because of the fall. But what happened to us? We were transformed by the light, by the truth of God, by his spirit within us, which brings us that inner light. Hodge writes this. I'll give you two quotes, one from Hodge and one from Calvin. Vile, however, as those sins are, they are capable of being corrected. They're not beyond cure. Reprove them. Let in the light of divine truth upon them, and they will be corrected or healed, for the truth is divinely efficacious. Calvin said he had exhorted them to reprove the evil works of unbelievers and thus to drag them out of darkness. And he now adds that what he enjoins upon them is the bu proper business of light, to make manifest. This is the transformative power, not just of Christianity in culture, but Christianity in people. Who are you supposed to be? You're supposed to be light bearers. You're supposed to be bringing others into the light. And that light itself has a transformative power. As, it, as the truth of the gospel was communicated to me, somebody who had been raised in darkness, who had dwelt in darkness, who had loved darkness in one sense, even though it made me miserable, it was my natural environment. The light shone on my life. And what did it do? It exposed the evil in my heart for the first time. I saw it clearly. That was the funny thing. When you're in the darkness, you're blind. You can't see. There are creatures that are built by God to see in the dark. But unless the army gives you night vision goggles or something like that, as a general rule, we're blind as bats are not in the dark. <laughs> Brothers and sisters... We don't see our sin as a consequence of that. We don't see how wretched we are. That was the first thing that happened to me when the light of the word shone in my heart. I saw how wretched my heart was. I saw how wretched my desires were. I saw the awful things that I had done clearly for the first time. They were illuminated. And what did I do? I fled away from them. I was horrified. I was horrified to see who I really was. And I wanted nothing more to do with it. So I ran, you know, there's that awful poltergeist scene, and I'm speaking like a Gen Xer, I know. But, you know, <laughs> run into the light, baby. That's the, uh, that's the thing that we're supposed to do when our evil is illuminated finally. We run to the light. We run to Christ. And so Paul says, he gives us this exhortation in verse 14. Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. What's he doing there? He's paraphrasing. You'll notice it's set apart. They understand there that he's paraphrasing some portion of Scripture. It's not a direct quote, but it is 
a paraphrase of a prophetic portion of Isaiah. Isaiah 61 and 2, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The coming of the gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ, is equated in Isaiah with the, the rising of the sun. A light has shone upon the Gentiles, is one of the themes in Isaiah. The idea is we were once in darkness, but the light arises. That we were once in night, but day comes. The sun rises with healing in his wings. And we who are asleep, because we sleep at night in the darkness, don't we? He says, awake. That's one of the reasons, incidentally, that in heaven there is no longer any need for sleep. It's something you do at night in the darkness. There is no more night. We'll live in the perfect eternal day. We awaken because Christ has brought the dawn. And here he shows us that this is the gospel fulfillment. This is what the world needs. This is what the world has been looking for. The coming of the light, the end of darkness, the end of death, the end of all of those things. And therefore, those who were once asleep, those who were once dead in sins and trespasses, are brought to life. They're awakened finally. They, are, they rise from the dead just as Christ rose from the dead on the third day, putting away the darkness of the tomb and coming forth into the glorious light. We too, when we're brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come out of the darkness, we're brought into the light. And it is something that God does for us. I'm going to close with a quote by Hodge again. He says, The light which comes for Christ has power to reach even the dead, as our Lord, in the use of another figure, says, The hour is coming, and now is, that the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. This does not mean that the dead must be revived before they hear the voice of the Son of God, but his voice causes them to hear and live. So the passage before us does not mean that those, who, those asleep must arise from the dead and come to Christ for light, but the light which Christ sheds around him has power to awake the sleeping dead. The light shone upon Lazarus in his tomb before the rock was rolled away. And that's why he came forth at that moment at the voice of the Lord. And so too we, who will be someday dead and buried, will be awakened when he says, come forth. Those who have already been awakened before by his glorious light inwardly, who know the spiritual truths that I'm speaking of, who understand it, who see by the light that Christ gives, they will arise and come forth with bodies made like his to newness of life. But those who are awakened by the voice of Christ on judgment day and who have not yet closed with him, they will be consigned to what they lived in before, eternal death, eternal darkness, eternal signs of their ignorance and unbelief. I hope you are already dwelling in the light. I hope you know you were once a child of darkness, but now you're in the light. If not, come into the light. No longer be like the cockroaches who, who live in darkness and only feel content there, although never truly content, just as cockroaches spend their entire life scurrying around looking for something to, to feed them. So... Those who are spiritually dead always spend their lives constantly scurrying around trying to find something that will give them happiness. And they never find it. Never fully. Come into the light. Christ is the light of the world. Come to him. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we do thank you that you have made us children of light. You've shed your marvelous light abroad within us. And now, Lord, we pray that we would be light 
and we would reprove the sins of the world, those things, Lord, that we, we see that are too shameful even to speak of. Lord, let us make manifest that these are the things of darkness and death. And instead, let us bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying, a dark world, so that they too might know the joy, the peace, the contentment, the truth, the life, the light, all of these things that come from 